The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey, coaches. Welcome to the new season of Learning from Experts. As I mentioned last week, we've changed the format to a podcast format. And the advantage of that is three things. First, each week's podcast episode shows up automatically in your phone at 5 a.m. in the podcast section of your phone. Secondly, you have access to all our prior episodes. And third, you get a Monday notification on your phone of this week's episode. But here's what I need you to do. Go into the podcast section of your phone and in the query section, key in learning from experts, UT. Then when you see our orange logo, click to follow. Once you do that, hey, you're good to go. Let me know if you have any challenges. So this week, you're going to hear from the legendary football coach, Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New England Patriots. He's arguably the top coach in the sport of football. Would anybody disagree with that? Listen for how work ethic, work ethic is more important than talent because at the pro level, the difference in talent is small and the difference maker is work ethic. You'll also learn how Belichick demands measurement and accountability in drills. This is where work ethic shows up in practice. He holds players accountable to their performance in drills in a way that he just can't do in games. And listen for how he has the leanest staff in the NFL and why he does that. And one final thing to listen for. Belichick talks about how timing is key in athletic performance. Timing. Interesting. For a receiver, it's knowing when to cut. For another position, Timing is key as to when to apply a certain technique. And after Bill Belichick, we hear from well-known Stanford PhD psychologist, Carol Dweck. Listen for how you can scientifically improve willpower, which directly affects discipline. And here's the essence of what you learned this week. The power of learning from the best. You don't have to be the smartest guy or girl in the room. But if you're what I call a conduit of learning and learn from the best and then have the good sense to implement what you learn, boy, you're at a distinct advantage over everybody else. Wouldn't you agree? So let's get rolling. Let's listen to the legendary Bill Belichick. And remember, as a coach here at the University of Texas, hey, you're living the dream. Hey, I'm Paul Rabel. Welcome to my podcast, arguably the greatest coach in all of sports. His accolades are endless, but he won't spend much time talking about them. 
generally, he doesn't spend much time with the media outside of his obligatory press conferences. Coach Belichick ranks process, execution, and culture first. Example, the NFL gets huge ratings every year at their college draft. And every year, the Patriots pick up undrafted players, free agents, former college lacrosse players, and sometimes Popeye's employees. How does he create this winning formula? Well, his process of player selection, competitive analysis, and game day execution, I think, apply to both sports and business. Let's find out more. So you and I have, have known each other for over a decade now. And uh, I had the opportunity, because of, of your background growing up playing football and lacrosse, um, to ask Coach Petro, when you came to a practice, who was my college coach at a time, to say, like, hey, can I sit down with Coach Belichick and, and uh, ask him about what my goals were, like learning about the captains on the team, learning about the culture, and like how to work hard, how to be great. And you were so gracious to like sit down and and spend that time with me. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later when I graduated, you know, I grew up in the DC area and you send me a bunch of Patriots stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Never forget that. And I'm and I'm one of your biggest supporters. Um and uh and have always been like so impressed by how you think about sports and how you think about business. And even when I was sitting outside, um, is a really busy time of the year. Every, every, I guess all seasons are really busy in the NFL, but you're basically, you're basically like a CEO. Um, and when you think about like a coach, any coach and, and like you're, you're, you know, managing other coaches, you're also, um, encouraging them, you're helping them flourish and grow. You're, you're managing players, you're overseeing ops, um, and then you're performing on field. It's one of the most you know, volatile positions in terms of turnover for coaches. Is that a way that you look at it at all? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of leadership. It's a lot of management um, from all the support systems that we have. I mean, honestly, the coaching part of it is, I don't say easy, but I'm pretty – I've had a lot of experience at that. It's the uh, overseeing of all the departments, uh, video, training, medical – um, equipment, operations, sports science, um, et cetera. Uh, so all those things that support our football team uh, have to be organized, coordinated, and uh, their jobs have to be identified and monitored and so forth. And certainly have people in each of those areas to do it, but it has to all be tied together somehow. So yeah. um, that's that's definitely challenging. Um, that's not in the football coaching manual. That's right. uh, That's come somewhere else. Um, but the, the coaching part of it really is, um, I say easy and fun. Um, not easy, easy, but you know, it comes easy Yeah. and, you know, working with assistant coaches, coordinators, uh, strength coaches, um, and then game plans and coaching and corrections and game day yeah. adjustments and all that. That's kind of the, the more standard and probably what people think coaching is, but the overall organization that goes with it or alongside of it, salary cap management, uh, draft strategy, draft evaluations, and yeah. so forth. It's it gets you know it's a big business. It's thick. Oh man, I, I mean, very it's, thick book. Yeah, I I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, it's and what's interesting too is is I could hardly keep track of that laundry list of items that you're going through on a daily basis. Um, I'm 
interested as I look at lacrosse sticks in the corner, I'm interested in, in how you're keeping track of it. And I'm sure it's systematic in a way, or at some point it's just like part of how, how you wake up and think about what you do, but you also keep the leanest staff in the NFL. And, and so like of all those obligations, why I'm sure over time or how have you developed a, a group of guys in terms of numbers underneath you that are, that are managing all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my philosophy really is that less is more. And so I'd rather have fewer people doing more work than more people doing a little more work. Um, you know, as long as everybody's busy, as long as everybody feels productive, um, you know, they feel good about what they're doing and they feel like they're contributing. Uh, I think when people have uh, lag time and kind of not enough to do and then that leads to getting distracted or um, you know, complaining or, uh, whatever, being less productive, you know, even though you have more people, sometimes less work gets done. So, um, and I'd say from a getting everybody on the same page standpoint, which is critical, uh, the fewer people you have to manage, the easier it is to get everybody on the same page. So if you're talking to, you know, 10 people, it's hard to get all 10 people doing the same thing or doing the right thing. Um, now you make that number 20 instead of 10, it's even more difficult. And, yep. Um, if you have, uh, five people supervising another 15 people, now you've got another layer there where you're not dealing directly with everybody. And now it's, uh, you're somewhat, uh, at the, um, you know, you're dependent on other people to relay the message the way you want it done, uh, and to monitor it that way. And certainly there's a degree of that, but as much of that as I can, uh, eliminate, I, I think just works better for me. Yeah. You, uh, you were an econ major. I saw, I saw a letter that, uh, when we were doing our research, um, that, that you had exchanged with, with your professor there and how it's been helpful for you on, on the, on the salary cap side, but understanding kind of like macro and microeconomics as it relates to like macro and micromanagement. Are you, uh, I know a lot of the coaches that you're working with have, have been with you. Some of them are your sons. So there's there's tremendous amount of trust and buy into culture. Uh, do you subscribe more to like you know, more meetings? Are you like a meetings culture? Do you believe that, or or are you like, hey, I, these guys are on the same page. We're going to meet maybe a couple of times. And I know there's sometimes where I'm sure meetings go up around games and season, and then around the draft. Yeah, I I think that's um, I mean that's a great question, and I think over the course of my career, the answer to that has changed. Um, I guess my philosophy is I think if we need to meet, we meet. Um, if we need to get everybody on the same page and talk collectively about whatever the subject happens to be, then then we meet. Sometimes those meetings are long. Sometimes they're, um, you know, they can involve multiple days. Um, and there are other times where I think that once you get the information covered, then get everybody out of the meeting room and let them go do it and let's get to work. So. Uh, until everybody knows what they're doing, until everybody uh, kind of can identify where, where the target is, what the, where the finish line is located, then I think you need a meeting to make sure that, that we have that right. Yeah. Uh, and then once that's identified and everybody understands it and there's no, um, you know, it's, it's clearly defined. We might all not all agree, yeah. but it's been defined, then, then there's time to get out of there and do it. So. Uh, you're right, Paul. Some of that fluctuates depending on the time of year it is and what process we're in. But uh, whatever time of year it is, it, to me, it's kind of the same thing. You need a meeting to get organized, uh, and uh, that meeting might last a week. But once you're organized, then somebody's got to go out there and do the work. 
with with those meetings is you know I like what you said there like meet when you need to meet um and I think in in business a lot of times we're 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 setting weekly meetings on certain verticals and looking at stuff like that just like knowing when it needs to get done it needs to get done is that the way that you've built the culture around here too or are there or there were there moments where you you explicitly describe the pillars as like this is what we this is what we stand for and i know your my guess is that your coaches are all in line but like when you're bringing in new talent is there like this cultural um kind of study that they have to go to are you leading that to your leaders cuz I, I i gotta say like it's people talk about process yes and and, he, and it's and it's huge here I don't think people talk enough about culture here um, because I, it's, I think it just supersedes it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's certainly, again, that's part of getting everybody on the same page. And I'd say a big part of that is the selection process. So if you select people that um, aren't going to be able to make that adjustment to the culture, then you're really swimming upstream and it's hard to get it done. So part of the, part of getting everything in line is selecting the right people with the right, values or the right work ethic uh, that can, you know, actually make it functional uh, in a productive way. But I think that's a, you know, it's a great, uh, it's a great part of the program is, is the, is the culture and the attitude, the mindset. We're very short term and very short sighted. So uh, really our game plan is what's good for today. What do we need to do today? Uh, Let's identify our goals. Um, How are we going to you know, structure our practice or our day or our time. Uh, and then, you know, what do we accomplish? And then based on that, what do we need to do tomorrow? Um, are we ahead of schedule or behind schedule? Um, and if we need to go back and pick up something up because it wasn't completed or fin- pro- finished properly or whatever the case is, we need to do that. If we're on schedule or maybe a little ahead, then, then we can accelerate the process the next day. So, um, you know, each each day really for us is is an independent you know goal. And uh, if we're better today than we were yesterday, uh, and we've accomplished what we need to do, then we're on track. If we didn't, then uh, until we get those things done, then there's no point in trying to you know go to a place we're not ready to go to. So, um, and, that, and that includes everybody. That's coaches. That's players. That's support staff. Um, be prepared. So get a good night's rest. Know what the next day is going to bring. Uh, if you have to study for it or do some kind of preparation for it, uh, do it. If you're an athlete, then that means, uh, again, getting a good night's sleep, getting your recovery, uh, eating right, sleeping right, nutrition, and so forth. Um, if you're a coach, it's uh, as much of that as possible, but it's having the material prepared for the players, uh, the film, the meeting structure, the game plan, whatever it is. Uh, and then, you know, come in. Uh, know what you're supposed to do. Pay attention to the details and the little things that make a difference. Work hard. Uh, and at some point, you know, you're going to have to make a decision between what you want to do and what the team needs you to do. And we always expect that we'll all put the team first. Yeah. So it's a pretty simple game plan, and it's the same thing, whether it's Sunday game day or whether it's uh, Wednesday practice day or whether it's Tuesday in March on an off-season day. Uh, those same principles are the ones that we live by on a daily basis. When you talk about work ethic, like even put football aside and, and sports aside, you hear that so often, like being the hardest worker in the room. And a lot of it's lip service and a lot of it can't be quantified. Is, is there a way that like you, over time and seeing so much talent come in and out from a management side to on field, 
you're able to like develop this sixth sense on what work ethic actually like how can you actually define it or is it just gut well well i think the re- it, it comes in the results so for me it's really two things one is again paying attention to details being coachable um understanding the material that you're being given and then working at it so my experience has been uh any athlete or uh coach or business person, but let's just take an athlete, any athlete that pays attention to the material. They listen to the coaching. They listen to the coaching points. They understand what they need to do to get better. Then if they then go and work hard, they'll improve. Yeah. Um, if they don't listen to the coaching and they just go out and work, but uh, they're going to do it their way, they're going to do it you know, in a way that's it's work, but it's not productive work. Hmm. then the improvement is pretty marginal. And the person that sits there and understands this is all the things I need to do, but then they don't actively work hard to improve them, isn't going to improve either. So my experience has been regardless of the person's talent level, if they are attentive and listen and then work hard, then you're going to see improvement. Now, some people will improve at different rates, but there'll be consistent improvement if those two things are in place. So you can probably... That, that's really interesting. So you can probably figure out then, p- people are thinking work ethic and, and they're probably thinking in sports, you know, how, how much time is this guy training? How much is he sleeping? You know, what's the team around him doing? And, and, and you can probably figure out, you can figure out your metric on work ethic sitting in a room, whether this guy is like listening and, and actually you know, processing what you're saying in an interview or even the questions that you're asking. Because that's, that, from what it sounds like, that's more important than even the output. Is understanding first? Yes, sir. Yeah, because huh. right. What's the point in and uh, you know going and working hard? It's something that's and uh, it's our job to it's our job as coaches or whatever part of the organization we're in to provide the right instruction and the right methods. And yeah. so if we send the guy down the wrong road, then even though he works hard and improves, it's not going to turn out right. So we've got to give the players a chance. We've got to give the team a chance by. By having a good cha- game plan, by coaching good techniques, by setting up drills that will allow the player to improve, hmm. but assuming that he understands what he needs to do and puts in the quality work to improve it, then you know we'll see a difference. And yeah. the guys that we don't see a difference in either, number one, don't understand or don't want to understand because they just want to do it their way, or they understand, but they're really not willing to work hard enough to change it, and so therefore it never really changes it, yeah. it you know it's it's kind of lip service but there's no real change um and those players get bypassed by the ones that do the other yeah. regardless of what the talent is at this level uh there are different levels of great talent but eventually the talent's relatively competitive enough where a player who improves will eventually pass and that won't take that long will yeah. eventually pass a player that has a little more talent who's not improving. Yeah, so that's – and then there's a, a layer of being driven. I think you and I have talked about that. I think there's two things that have always stuck with me that I've gleaned from you is like you're never going to look at any pro league and see all of the first-team All-Americans from college dominating in college, not even cl- – or in pro, not even close. Uh, you see a lot of guys come out of, come out of nowhere, frankly, because the, the the margin, as you said, in talent is 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 much thinner at the pro level, and then it becomes like – comes down to how this athlete is thinking about how they're applying, how driven they are and playing the long game. I think it's, it's crazy. I mentioned your insight as, as we, we were talking about early commits in lacrosse and a seventh grader just committed. He hasn't even played in eighth grade. And, right. and like, you, 
there's so much there there are so much tire treads being burned now from youth to high school to college and then just to get a pro contract and people forget that once you get the pro contract you're just starting right yeah. now you're going to play hopefully 15 years which is the same amount of time that you've already burnt all this fuel are you seeing guys in like sports in general that are just like they just don't have any tread left on their tire because they're just they're clanging and banging too much as a young kid and they don't realize that like now you're just getting started once you get to the pros right I think there is some of that, and certainly physically, sometimes guys get worn down at different points. Um, it might be college, it might be early in their pro career, or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also, um, uh, you know, a level of maturity uh, that what a 13 year old, uh, seventh grader, or whatever it is, what he thinks is work and what he thinks is dedication, uh, and what an 18 year old thinks right. and what a 25 year old thinks. It's a little bit of a sliding scale, and um, so we've all been through those, and uh, certainly there were points in my life when I thought I was working hard, and then I look back and uh, realized I didn't know what hard work was. Yeah. Uh, I thought I did, but I really didn't. So some of that's just a uh, learning curve and, and growing, and um, I think that's part of maturing as a, as a person as well as an athlete. Yeah. And I'd say, and, and you know, Paul, you know, your body, uh, you're able to do more at, let's call it 22 than you were at 15. You yeah. Know, even though you might've worked as hard hypothetically, but you're just, just much better and you're able to sustain more and to produce more. Yeah. And then I would say I was able to probably do the, the most when I was 25 and 26 athletically, and then now when I'm 31, I, I think I'm able to actually do more than 25 because I understand the game better. Yes. And so areas that I was really poor in was being off ball, was cutting off ball. And, you know, now playing with new guys in New York, I, I you know, great feeders. I figure out how to cut for the first time. And then you're also, you know, you, you can't move and you can't take the hits like you used to. So, you, you know, you, your career elongates in a way. The second thing that, that I always, uh, you know, took away from, from one of our dinners at least was that you can have, you can be in, have an incredible IQ and even EQ, but you don't have a football knack. Um, and then there's the same thing in, in, in business, right? You can have a knack for business and what you're doing. Um, IQ doesn't necessarily test to football smarts. And so is that something that, is just like reveals itself on field to you? Or are you able to figure that out earlier? Yeah. Well, again, I think for players that get to this level, they have to have a certain element of um, decision-making and instinctiveness besides physical ability to, to be successful, to get to this level. But certainly it separates as you go up. And um, it's a very interesting, uh, it, you know, it's, Certainly not an easy thing to identify. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can see great when you can see maybe very poor, but there's a lot of gray in the middle, and and uh, that's like a big part of it. Some of the some of the Ivy League football players, by nature, and it could be stereotyped that come to the NFL, you think like, oh, this is going to be one of the smartest football players, and it actually might be the opposite. Yeah, right? and and it's funny because when I grew up, and you know, my dad coached the Naval Academy. Um, that was a little bit of a frustration for him as uh, I can remember him talking about how, you know, these guys come in and get 1500 on their college boards and they're, you know, uh, some of the smartest young people in our country. And 
you know, blow coverage, uh, yeah. you know, on when a guy goes in motion and that kind of thing. So um, it doesn't always translate, you know, a, a mechanical engineer or an aeronautical engineer may not have the same, um, you know, football instinctiveness that uh, I've had guys that had trouble reading and writing and they just weren't, you know, very literate or very well educated, but they knew how to play football and they could see what the other 21 guys on the field were doing uh, all at once because they just were able to process that. And guys that had, you know, 1,500 on college boards had trouble seeing what two people were doing, like yeah. maybe the two guys in front of them. Um, so it's it's just, you know, we all have different aptitudes. We all have different th- ways to process information. And um, But it's interesting, uh, you know, testing and IQ and uh, some of those measurements don't necessarily correlate to – you know, athletic uh, decision-making yeah. and, and intelligence. I think we see that too. Even even in business, they say the only time you use your resume is like your entry-level job to like giving that to your employer. Then beyond that, once you start sinking your teeth in and you start moving around creatively and understanding business, you can go in a number of different directions. And so much that a lot of people are questioning some of the, our planet's greatest entrepreneurs are questioning the educational system and the way that we're like bringing people up through specific verticals and telling them right and wrong versus think through and ask questions. Um, one of the guys that, that you told me it was one of the, the bright spots of your career, arguably one of the best players to have ever played was Lawrence Taylor, and he had a knack for making big plays. Among many of the kind of the mentors that I want to hear about and, and the network that you've established, like what is that coaching experience like with someone who uh, just knows how to play? Yeah, it's, um, you know, a play like uh, Lawrence is, was such a special athlete, but a really special player because of his awareness and instinctiveness. And um, I had... Uh, worked with players that had some of that, but not to the level that uh, that Taylor did. Um, Taylor had the ability to, you know, when he stood on the end of the line of scrimmage, which is where he played as an outside linebacker, defensive end, he could just tell by – it didn't matter, um, you know, who the person was or what the play was or anything else. He could just tell by the, the look – of the opponent on the other side of the line of scrimmage who was going to block him. And that was by how scared they were. Yeah. So when the tackle would line up and was just, you know, kind of in a normal stance, uh, LT knew he wasn't being blocked by that guy. Right. That it was somebody else's job. Yeah. But when that tackle was looking at him like, you know, if I'm one split second late out of my stance, if I am one, you know, a few inches off on my angle or step – this guy's going to be by me. They'd have that scared to death look. And Taylor could just tell by looking at the guy, whether the guy was blocking him or not. And the same thing with the quarterback. When the quarterback when it was a running play and a quarterback come up to the line, look around, snap the ball. Taylor knew it was a run or would anticipate that it was a run because the quarterback didn't care about him. It was somebody else's problem. But if it was a pass play and that guy looked and the quarterback looked out at Taylor and is he rushing? Is he not rushing? Do I have him picked up? Before the ball was even snapped, he could just tell by the terror that he felt, you know, from that individual, the look in the guy's eye or how kind of nervous he was uh, from play to play, you know, run pass, uh, which guy's blocking me, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And um, he would oftentimes come off and tell me that, like, after the first or second series. 
It said, uh, you know, say, oh, I, I, I can read this on every play. It's yeah. easy, you know, <laughs> because the tackle, you know, if he had him in pass protection, was scared to death and would yeah. be in a real light stance and have all his weight back. Yeah. And <laughs> and it was different when they played Taylor compared to maybe what we'd seen on film playing some other guys. Yeah. Um, and Taylor also had the ability to see what everybody was doing from where he was. So as he would look inside and see – you know, the defensive players on his side of the line, the offensive linemen to the backs, to the quarterback, uh, you know, he, he could see more than just the guy in front of him. Huh. And, you know, when the play – before, again, before the play would even uh, – you know, we come off the field and and say, well, you know, what, what happened on that protection? How are they doing it? And it might look to us like, on the you know, from the coaches or from a coaching uh, picture that, well, they're blocking it this way. And Taylor will come off and say, no, they're not doing that. That guy's got him, and this guy's got me. And this other guy's looking for me, too, so they're really getting ready to double-team me. Yeah. I can see this other guy looking. And, you know, as a coach, you can't see that. But as, a, as an athlete there on the field, he could see it. And then, sure enough, eventually you would see a couple plays where that would bear – that, you know, information yeah. would, you know, would actually play itself out, and you could see he was exactly right Um he had a great sense of that. And those aren't things that come in a scouting report. That comes on game day when you walk out on the field and you just feel, you know, the kind of the presence of your opponent. When you when you have someone like Lawrence Taylor, um, do, did you create your defense in New York around him or did you create the defense around the other personnel that you had and just like leverage the shit out of Lawrence Taylor? Like Lawrence Taylor is going to go out and do his thing. You know what I mean? There's a, it's, it's like a, I feel like it's a slight difference, but – uh, sometimes we can, and there can be, and that could lead to a win or a loss or a successful team and an unsuccessful team. How, like, how, how do you do that? And I know you, you look at each team every year, even here in New England, and are like creating is creating your infrastructure around that specific talent. Right. Well, one of the things about having a player like Taylor, um, and you know, clearly he's the best defensive player I've ever coached by you know a good margin, but. Um, we know we had a basic defensive system that, you know, everybody played in, whether it was, and, and he played in it, he played a role in it. Uh, but from game to game and from, uh, situation to situation, there were certainly ways that we could, uh, try to highlight him into it. But I would say in his particular case, when you have a player on the end of the line, if you don't have another good player on the other side of the line, there's a lot of things you're not going to be able to do. So uh, when they were running away from Taylor into Banks, um, you know that was not quite as big of a problem, but it was still a problem. Where if if Banks wasn't over there, if it had been a you know more of a marginal player, then there were a lot of things that would have made it a lot tougher for Taylor. And there were actually some things that Carl Banks did better than LT, which in a way they complemented each other. Um, and so, but when you have an end of the line player like that. Um, you need to have another one on the other side yep. in order to balance it. Whereas if you have a great player in the middle, then, you know, he's a great player in the middle and, and you know, wherever they go, he has a chance to get there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when you're – if you can only rush from one side, well, then the offense can, you know, run away from that or protect to that side and so forth. It's so, beatable in football, right? Like it's, it's yeah, what you, you look at it. too, right? You look at taking out – the, the the strengths right yeah that definitely I don't want to get beat by what our opponent does best I don't want to come off the field after the game and say well they 
they did what they do and you know we didn't really try to stop it and they beat us with it and i want to try to stop it and make them beat us with something that we think they don't do as well and do you think you think that is is one of those overused uh, thought processes and strategy for, for, for coaches and sports in general is like, let's eliminate the knowns. I, I, I grew up in that system and I, and we absolutely committed to it. And we went to three national championships when I was at Hopkins under coach Petro. And I know you, you guys focus on that too, in like identifying the knowns and taking out the strengths. Um, yeah. I think it's a lot easier said than done. I think you have to have a system that, you can do that without too much stress. So if every week we have to put in a new defense to uh, take care of a problem, that's a lot of uh, learning, a lot of installation, a lot of Mm. adjustments, a lot of things that can happen. Uh, Yeah, you set this defense for whatever it is, but then when something happens a little bit different and your team doesn't have experience with it, it's hard to execute. So I think you have to have a system that's flexible enough to handle you know, those various problems that you're going to have to handle uh, so that when they come up, then, you know, there's not a panic on your team of, well, we talked about doing it this way, but then out in the game, they did something a little bit different. Now, how do we handle it? Yeah. Uh, so, um, and, the, and the other thing, I think it's important going back to the, what we were talking about a little bit earlier, you know, whether it be in business or in football, as you know, as an athlete is timing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can be fast, but, um, making the cut at the right time is a little more important than being fast or, yeah. um, you know, running the route on the right timing is a little more important than being whatever at all. So look, yeah. the, the bigger and faster and quicker and all that, the better, but, uh, timing, whether it be in sports or in business, uh, the right decision can be the wrong one if the timing is bad. So mm. a lot of that's instinctive. A lot of that is, uh, gained through experience, yeah. but, uh, timing is an important part of all critical decisions. Do you think that's why, uh, traditionally at least, and, and part of it is off the back of all the AFC titles that you guys own and and the, and the Super Bowls that you've won, but like not usually at, at, on the front side of the draft, right? And 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 like those are probably like the, the first picks are usually occupying like the, the the biggest and baddest athletes according to the analysts. And and would you weigh like? You weigh timing and understanding more, and then obviously, if you can get both, you can get both. But you know, kind of from talent acquisition standpoint, how do you look at you know, look at that as a CEO and, and where to fit? Yeah, I think you just have to put it all together. Um, you know, each one of us has our own individual characteristics, whether that's uh, vertical jump, intelligence, work ethic, um, flexibility. Yeah. Uh, but you just got to put it all together and it's just one mosaic. And then we try to put a value on that. So, and are you filling current needs or are you just trying to get the best? Available? Well, let's put the value on it first. Yeah. And then if we have, uh, multiple players with the, you know, the same value, then, then maybe you take a guy on need, but before we get to that, uh, so we have, a consistency, then we we put a value on each player. Look, that player may go to another team, and then two or three years later, that player may you know become in part of the conversation huh. uh, and become yeah. available. And then, well, what do we think of that player? Well, we don't want to grade him based on what our need was. We want to grade him based on what his what we think his performance level was, Got and it. we keep that current so that when those guys come up, we have a what we feel like a true evaluation of the player, not yeah. an evaluation of what our needs are. Um, but huh. I would say the, um, the, you know, again, each one of us has a composite of all those physical characteristics, intangibles, um, 
injuries, whatever it happens to be. And at some point we have to say, okay, this is the value we place on that. And the next player may have a totally different set of circumstances, but the value may be the same. So you just have to uh, identify if it comes down to two or three of the same, which flavor do you like? They're all good. Uh, What do you need? Or which one would fit better for you? Uh, And another team may be sitting there and looking at the same guys and feel like in their culture or their situation, they prefer a different one. So, you know, that's part of it too. I think that for, for at least one of the assumptions that I've that I've always put on you, and at least relates to football, is how cerebral you are and how how well you understand it, how well you think about it. And my my guess is that part of it is 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 that you grew up watching film, and you mentioned your dad, and and you've it's been a big part of what you do now as an organization. But how you cut your teeth? What, what's the role of? Or do you think the, the mentors? Those like your father and and other coaches that you had played under, um, and then even broader your your extended network beyond the sport. How does that play in in your own like personal growth? Because it's it's just so evident from my perspective that you're intellectually curious and always want to improve and are pulling from different industries fairly regularly. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as as you know, uh, Paul, when you're growing up, you you're not maybe as aware of your surroundings as you are when you reflect back, um, you know, a decade or two later. So, yeah. you know, when you're a kid, you're a kid, and you just you know you do what you do. But then you look back and say, "Well, I learned a lot doing this," or "I that was a great experience for me." Maybe better than what you realized at the time. So, uh, at the time, I didn't realize it, but looking back on it, it was a tremendous experience. I was exposed to. Um, you know, great discipline and great programs at the Naval Academy, um, and a lot of co- a lot of great coaches uh, with different philosophies and different ways of doing things. But that that's part of it too, is that there's multiple ways to be successful. It's not just uh, one thing. So uh, you know, those were all uh, part of my. And then in my um, you know playing career as an athlete, I played under different types of coaches and you know some things work for some guys some things didn't work but I think in the end what I learned was you know you have to be yourself you have to have, develop your own style uh, you can learn from other people but in the end you have to be able to uh, be comfortable in your own skin doing that and if yeah. that's really not your style and you're trying to be somebody else that usually doesn't go very far um, but if you're comfortable with it and you believe in it and you know you can uh, be a leader with that type of style then uh, it can work and so that was th- those were all valuable experiences uh, to reflect back on uh, because as I think of the many different uh, coaches that I I watched they were, they were different but in the end what worked for them worked for them and, and I'd say the other thing in coaching and it's probably true in business too is uh, you know, you can only do uh, what you can do. And this might be mm. a great idea and this might uh, work for somebody else and it might be a great play, but if you can't execute it, then it's not a good one. And yep. so, uh, and that's some of the conversations, many conversations I've had with Coach Petromala. Yep. Uh, even though we're in different sports, um, it's good if you can do it. If you can do it, you know, then great, it'll work. If you can't do it, then you probably need to retreat a little bit to what you can do and what you can do well and what you're confident in. And that's a fine line, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's a fine line for a player, too. What shot are you comfortable with and 
What shot are you not comfortable with? And there's a, you know, a little, there's a gray area there at some point. And then eventually you're comfortable with a lot of different shots. But, you know, as you're going through that process, you figure out uh, what, what works, what's what you're, what you can do. And then uh, think knowing what you can't do sometimes is just as important as knowing what you can do. Do you think that, that having or experiencing some type of like measurable failure is critical to real growth. And I'll, and I'll give my example that I've felt my career and even my perspective on life change, change when, you know, you're, I was young running, I was, I was learning, had great mentors, improving, felt like I was disciplined. Um, was 20, that's all I was 27 or 28. We lost my second round of being in the world championships to Canada uh, which many say was the biggest upset in, in international games history. And then two games later, that was during a break of our MLL season, I broke my foot. So I felt like my back was against the wall and I started really thinking about different things. They saw. And uh, do you buy into that? Because it's, it's often asked, we hear in, in interviews, talk about failure. And, and many people haven't gone through it. So it's one of those things like, you don't want to force it on someone, but. Yeah, well, I know I remember the losses more than, and the wins yeah. um, and the plays that uh, you'd like to have back that might have gotten you another championship or um, so it's uh, those stick with you. I don't know if you ever um, I don't know if you ever really get rid of them. Uh, and so they probably are, you know, somewhat of a driving force because you just don't want that feeling again. You just don't want to let your team or teammates down and you want to be a little more prepared the next time so that you don't suffer that disappointment of being close but not being able to to be a champion because of something that just wasn't quite good enough against another good competitor. How When you remember that kind of stuff, how are you able to – I know in sports and the time that I've spent on the psychology side, uh, being able to, 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 to be present and play in those moments. You and I have talked about that. So often we think about – I miss that pass or I turn the ball over there and you're trying to get that play back or you're looking, you know, to the future, the fourth quarter or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, correct the mistake, learn from it and move on. Um, you're just and, an expert and, at letting go at this point. You're just like, boom, I mean, we move on. We, well, you have to, you know, because <laughs> we're all going to make them, um, you know, we're all going to get knocked down in athletics. That's part of it. Yeah. Um, you got to get back up and you get back in the ring and, you know, resume the fight. And that's, um, or, and same thing in business, but yeah. it's, you know, that getting knocked down is, is part of athletics. Uh, and you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta respond to that adversity or that setback. And, um, we've all had a lot of them, but yeah, you, you gotta, you know, you gotta learn from it. Like what knocked you down? Uh, how did you get hit by that punch? What could you have done to protect yourself a little bit better maybe? And yeah. then, get up and, and get back in it. Yeah. Earlier you, you had mentioned how important it is for your players to be sleeping and eating well and stuff. You don't have time to sleep. Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I have to, you know, once yeah. I get to the point in the day where I just feel I'm not being productive, then I need to, I need to, you know, get, get to a, the point the next day where I am, where I can have yeah. a good day. And so, do you have those certain boundaries that you set every day that like I have to get I have to do this every day to be mindful and be effective? Or, uh, or you yeah, s- I think in in general terms, yeah, you know, you know again, um, in our world, every day is a little bit different. You know, so Monday is different than a Tuesday. Tuesday is different than a Wednesday. But within each of those days, kind of like you know, on this day, here's how I can right. maximize my productivity. On this day, on this day, on a different day, here's yeah. how I do it, and so forth. But th- they're not all the same. Yeah, and I know you're not getting 
um, inspiration from social media, as no. you and I talk about. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> but are you? Uh, do you read a lot of books? Do you do you try and uh, where, where are you gathering a lot of um, a lot of your creativity or a lot of you know, some inspiration from? inside of the sport or sometimes out or is that done through your network and your relationships yeah i think that's a big part of it um although i you know i certainly you know do read and some of it's current some of it's historical um but you know like i would say guy, people, like, yeah sure yeah. yeah or you know whatever a you know a motivational or a um you know, an interesting story that just mm-hmm. you know somebody um i don't go through the you know the new york times bestseller list you know right. weekly but you know if somebody that i respect tells me you know it's a great book here's what you know i've read it i mean i'll you know certainly put it on the list there um but yeah i'd say a lot of it is for, from you know people like yourself coach petromala uh, the coaches that i work with other associates uh and so forth he bounce Saul ideas all you bet it's you know it's all be right at the top of that list um <laughs> that you you know they give you ideas they give you thoughts it might be football related or it might not be but um yeah absolutely i'd say the networking is probably a big part of it yeah yeah that's great and then and as part of a lot of that um growth that you've extracted from what you've done in football, the platform that you built, the message that you send out in multiple geographies, you've started the Bill Belichick Foundation. Is that something that uh, you feel like will will be a part of you know, how people will remember you and the impact that, that your and your foundation is having on the greater youth athlete and football and lacrosse through funding, through equipment donations, through messaging, education, leadership? Um, you know, I, I think it'll make a difference to the people that it can make a difference to. Uh, that's not everybody. Um, you know, we fund the things that we can fund, the programs or the individual scholarships. And I think it makes a difference to those people. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's, it can change the world. Um, I don't think that's, I don't think Changing that's, people's worlds. Uh, but, it, but those individual people could mm-hmm. definitely, and, you know, we've all had that happen for us. People yeah. give us, whether it be a scholarship or a boost or a an opportunity that we might not have otherwise had uh, has made a difference. So that's that's really the the goal of the foundation is to to give opportunities through football across uh, academic scholarships um, to uh, people that might not otherwise have that opportunity. Yeah, and that's probably an area that that I sensed at least that that you carved out because it was something that you owned and you were passionate about, but. My guess is that you're also being pulled in so many different directions regularly and like having to you know, manage your time, manage your energy outside of what your core focus on, which is continuing to, to improve the New England Patriots. Um, do you have anything set up uh, like personally where you're like, I'm not answering these emails, I'm not responding to these text messages? Is that like, or, or like, how are you kind of coalescing everything that's coming through on a regular basis? Yeah, pro- probably not as efficiently as as I would like to, but yeah, that's that's really it. I think um you know, we have a kind of a saying around here um around mid-season or so that once we can kind of see the the push come in for the second half or the last third of the season, um we'd say it's time to start putting stuff in the drawer. So, um if it doesn't affect um, you know, 
the winning and losing of this game. Let's put it in the drawer. Let's deal with it after the season. I mean, there are family things and so forth that are yeah. above that, of course. But let's put this in the drawer and just concentrate on the season. And then you get to the end of the season. And um, in my case, instead of opening up the drawer, it's um, three drawers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you just start, you know, pushing your way through there and trying to get caught up on things that you've let go. But, you know, in order to accomplish our goals during the season – uh, I think that's a sacrifice that um, collectively our team, coaches, staff, you know, make that um, we know these games are um, the toughest because the competition is the highest, they're the most important, and let's put everything else aside and concentrate on that. So now we're in the catch-up mode, uh, which isn't easy when you have the draft and free agency yeah. and spring OTA workouts and so forth, but you just do the best you can. Well, I mean, people say in New York, the trading floor is busy on Wall Street. I appreciate you allowing us to pull this out of the drawer today because <laughs> I was outside waiting. And I know it's the off season, but man, people are moving around quick. And, and you know, you have free agency now that's available and draft coming up. And it just seems like uh, you guys have a really efficient shop. Obviously, we talked about it's really lean in terms of the the personnel and the culture that you've built. But Super impressive. I can just kind of be a fly on a wall pretty regularly. So I appreciate you letting me do yeah, that. Yeah, well, it's, you're right, Paul. It's an exciting time of year. And, of course, the um, what you do now with your football team in March and April has a lot to do with what happens in, in November and, and December. So, um, you know, when you take these days off, there's there's a price to pay uh, sometime down the road um, in terms of where your team is. So uh, it's an important time for us, but it's exciting. It's always exciting to put together the the new team with new draft choices and uh, free agents, and and um, you know the competition out there is is tough. So um, you know each little thing that you do could end up being very important in the in a very competitive environment like we're in. So yeah. thank you for the opportunity yeah. to be with you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. It's, of course, uh, it's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, bring this conversation to life and. I will shut the podcast down and talk about our foundations across <laughs> Final Four. That sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, you got it. So, coaches, here's the top three takeaways from this great interview. First, work ethic. It's more important than talent. Boy, that's interesting. Selection process of players is the key to protecting the work ethic in your culture. Best athlete is not always best for the team. Think about that with your team. Where have you seen that play out in the past? Is work ethic your number one priority in recruiting? And how do you weigh work ethic and talent as you evaluate athletes? Something to think about. Then the second takeaway, drills. Performance and accountability on drills is critical. And work ethic shows up in drills. And you can measure performance in the drills and hold players accountable in ways you can't in games. Do you hold your players accountable for performance in drills? And then the third takeaway. Belichick talks about how he has the leanest staff in the NFL. Has basically 10 people versus 20. Less people to manage, less layers of management. And people don't have time to screw around. Boy, that's an interesting idea. Think about your staff. Would it be better for you to have a leaner staff? Are there any C players on your staff? And that's the action step from this interview. Just think about your staff. Would it be better to have a leaner staff? So coaches, now we're going to hear from Stanford PhD, Carol Dweck. 
and she's an expert on influencing people. She's also an expert on grit. As you listen to this, hear how a fixed mindset and inclination not to grow impacts ego. It's interesting. Also listen for how it is scientifically proven that you can actually improve willpower. You'll find this fascinating. Also, you'll learn that a fixed mindset takes rejection or criticism way too seriously. This is good stuff, so enjoy. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. This is a very special episode of The Science of Success. To celebrate as we land our one millionth download. Can you guys believe that? One million downloads. For all the listeners that have been here since day one and for all of you who are just discovering the show. We're going to bring you an incredible special guest today. The author of one of my favorite books of all time. This episode is all about mindset. What is a mindset? What is the fixed mindset and how does it shape the way we act in the world? What is the growth mindset and how can it transform the way that we live our lives? We look at research data from over 168,000 students, examine the mindset of champions, the danger of blame and excuses, and much more with Dr. Carol Dweck. Today, we have a truly amazing guest on the show, Dr. Carol Dweck. Carol is a professor of psychology at Stanford University and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's the author of the best-selling book, Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, which is one of the single most important books in shaping my life. Her work has been featured in several publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, The Today Show, 2020, and much more. Carol, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Well, we're honored to have you on the show. So for listeners who, who may not be familiar with you and your background, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm kind of an egghead. I'm a professor, but I also have broad interest in the world. I've always, since childhood, wanted to figure out how people think, how they work, how to make them work better. And you obviously wrote the book Mindset, which, as I said in, at the top, is probably one of the top two or three most impactful books than I've ever read in my entire life. And I recommend it to people all the time. For listeners who may not know, I really want to dig into you know the fixed mindset, the growth mindset, and, and some of the yeah. key learnings from the book. But just to begin, when you say mindset, what is a mindset? Well, when I say mindset in the sense that it's used in my book, I mean people's beliefs about their most basic abilities and talents. When people are in a fixed mindset, they believe their basic abilities, talents, personal attributes, personality, that these are fixed traits. You have a certain amount, you have a certain type, and, and that's it. But when people are in more of a growth mindset, they believe that, yeah, people differ, 
but everyone can develop their talents, abilities, and personal qualities. Again, it doesn't mean everyone's the same or everyone will go to the same place ultimately, but it means everyone has the potential to develop. And boy, when you look into things, all the people you think are natural superstars underwent a long period of development, often with tremendous setbacks. So it's the sense that you can develop that propels you forward, not just some natural talent or personality that you were born with. So let's start with the fixed mindset. Tell me a little bit more about the fixed mindset. How does someone with a fixed mindset think and how do they approach things like obstacles and challenges? Mm -hmm. So first to make totally clear, we all are in the different mindsets at different times. And I can talk about that later. We all have triggers that can put us right into a fixed mindset, no matter who we are. But that said, some people are more often in a fixed mindset and some people are more often in a growth mindset. When you're in a fixed mindset, you think, for example, my intelligence is just fixed. I have a certain amount. I can't do anything about it. I really value being intelligent. So the goal of my life becomes to look smart at all costs in all situations and never look dumb. So when you're in that fixed mindset, a voice in your head says, maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you'll mess up here. Hey, do this. People will think you're really brilliant. When someone else is looking really smart, you feel threatened by that. When you're working on something hard and maybe struggling a little, you get really anxious. You think, maybe I'm not as good at this as I as I hoped I was, as I want to be. When you hit a setback, that's a calamity. That's a real condemnation of your natural talent. If you were so talented, would you have had that failure? Would you have plunged into this mistake like that? Will everyone know it? Will you be unmasked? Will you be found out finally? So the fixed mindset system is kind of this fear-based system, kind of fear alternating with arrogance. Because if you're going around thinking it's fixed and I have it, you have this arrogance. You feel I'm better than other people who have less of it. But if you're struggling or having setbacks, then you're feeling really kind of insecure. But what we found in our research, whether you're in the arrogant phase or the unarrogant phase, you're not primarily a learner. You're not looking always to grow your skills, to create teams that will help you develop and so forth. You're primarily about showing you're smart. And how does the fixed mindset think about effort? In a fixed mindset, there's a general tendency to think, if you're really smart, you shouldn't need a lot of effort. You shouldn't need as much effort as other people. And if you need a lot of effort 
as much effort as other people, it might call your ability into question. I think this is why so many promising people never fulfill their potential. They were going along. They were the smart one. They were the genius. They coasted along. They didn't have to work as hard as other people because they did have the talent and the know-how. But at some point, other people seemed to catch up. There were competitors. And at that point, the person in the fixed mindset has a choice. Should I roll up my sleeves and work hard too? Should I try new strategies? Should I get a mentor? Should I use resources to help me develop my abilities? Or should I retire while I was the smart one? Or should I go do something new? Often you'll hear people say, I got bored with that. I didn't like that anymore. And that could be true, but often it's the case. They felt threatened. They didn't feel like a natural talent anymore. So they drifted somewhere else. I get a lot of letters from people saying, They just kept drifting from one thing to another. They went as far as their natural talent took them, and then they jumped to something else. They never really understood what the cause of that was. And when they learned about the mindsets, they realized that if you're in a fixed mindset, trying to feel smart all the time, and you suddenly don't, you go somewhere else. It's not fun anymore. And how does someone with a fixed mindset think about criticism? They don't like it. When you're in a growth mindset, you seek criticism. You ask for feedback. You work with people around what you need to improve because you believe that's how your talent will develop. And by the way, it's also a smart strategy because when you get people to mentor you, they're invested in you. But in a fixed mindset, criticism is humiliating. It's an indictment of your natural ability. So you don't really want to hear the criticism. You're already putting your fingers in your ear. You're already trying to discount it, trying to think or even explain out loud why the criticism isn't appropriate. Even in relationships, if you have a fixed mindset about yourself as a person, in relationships, a partner may be trying to give you really helpful feedback about what they need or what upsets them or what isn't working. But if you're in a fixed mindset, you really take that as a slam, as someone pointing out a deficiency. So in a fixed mindset, you need to be right. What you did was right. And I talk in my book, Mindset, about my fixed mindset legacy where I needed to be right. And my husband and I had to invent this third person we called Maurice. And when something went wrong and when I was trying to blame him or he was trying to blame me, we said, let's blame Maurice and then look at the problem. It's his fault. Let's look at the problem. Let's discuss it. Let's get on with it. So in a fixed mindset, it's kind of that blame game, which is really destructive 
in the example I gave, your partner is just trying to give you feedback. Listen to it as helpful feedback because you want your partner to listen to your feedback, your needs. Just take it as something that will grow the relationship, bring you closer. Try to understand what that criticism is, whether it's your boss, your partner, your family. The more you listen to it in an open way and learn from it, the better those relationships will be. The fixed mindset, it sounds like a pretty scary place. And and I know personally, because I used to spend a lot of time there, that it can be. Let's change gears and tell me a little bit more about the growth mindset. The growth mindset, as I mentioned, is a place where you believe your abilities can be developed. Again, it doesn't mean you think you're Michael Jordan or Mia Hamm or Yo-Yo Ma, but you understand that abilities can be developed through hard work, learning good strategies, pushing out of your comfort zone as often as possible, just keep pushing that limit and getting lots of great input and mentoring from others. So it's a place where if you're not pushing out of your comfort zone, something's wrong. If you're just feeling smart, but not feeling you're getting smarter, something's wrong. When you get feedback rather than being threatened, you try to learn from it. If you see someone who's really better than you at something you pride yourself on, instead of thinking, uh-oh, maybe they're the ones with the talent, you think, I wonder how they got there. I wonder what they can teach me. I wonder how I can get as far as they got or maybe even farther. So the focus is, not on looking and feeling smart all the time or being perfect or beating out the competition for smartness all the time. But it's about becoming smarter, growing, learning, again, pushing out of your comfort zone, using mistakes and setbacks as opportunities to learn. And it was a long time before I could really get into the idea that setbacks were welcome, setbacks were inevitable, because it's so different from a fixed mindset place. I come out of a fixed mindset legacy. I, My sixth grade teacher, as I explain in my book, seated us around the room in IQ order. And wow, everything. It was already the highest IQ class in the school, but for her, Every point counted. And not just academic things. She wouldn't trust someone with a little bit lower IQ to carry the flag in the assembly or even erase and wash the blackboard. So we just got so inculcated that your IQ said everything about you. And yet over time through my work, I started taking on more and more risks and challenges. When I wrote Mindset, it wasn't it wasn't common for academics to stretch into that 
those areas to really put yourself out there, reveal yourself personally, talk to your reader as you talk to a friend. So in that growth mindset, you keep seeking experiences that will take you to some unknown and enhanced place. And you can't even imagine what that place will be until you stretch yourself. And inevitably, people say that they've gone farther than they ever imagined just by pushing out of their comfort zone all the time. And by the way, collaborating with others. We have research in Fortune 500 companies showing that in a growth mindset setting, people collaborate, learn from each other, get smarter together. In a fixed mindset setting, they compete with each other, hide information, cut corners, keep secrets from each other so that they can be the lone superstar. You can readily see how people in that growth mindset setting get much further, innovate more, create more, rise in the company more readily. You touched on some of the research that you've done, and I think it's really important for listeners to understand how data-backed and sort of research-validated these findings are. Would you talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done and some of the research you've conducted? Yes, exactly. So I'm telling you the bottom line about the research, but we've been doing research on the fixed and growth mindset for about 35 years. We have actually, and others have hundreds of studies with people of all ages. For example, in some of the studies, we might measure people's mindsets about their intelligence, ask them to answer questions like this, agree or disagree. Your intelligence is something very basic about you that you can't really change, fixed. Or everyone, no matter who they are, can become substantially more intelligent growth. And then we look at, say, in students, we look at their achievement over time. And we have often found that students endorsing that growth mindset achieve more in terms of grades or test scores or going on to college or graduating from college, achieve more over time. Recently, we did a study with all the 10th graders in Chile, 168,000 students. Those who held more of a growth mindset achieved substantially more at every level of family income. We also have a number of studies where we teach people a growth mindset. More recently, through online courses that we've developed for the research. And again, we find that people who learn this growth mindset have a greater desire for challenge, and they often go on to do better in school. So we have that research, lots of it. We have research on relationships showing, and so do other people, showing that people in more of a growth mindset 
are looking for not just personal growth and relationship, but partner's growth and growth of the relationship itself. They are more open to feedback. They are more open to solving problems in more of a fixed mindset. The people are more interested in not broaching problems, not finding there's anything wrong with them. And if things start going wrong in the relationship, they start thinking, maybe this wasn't meant to be. Maybe this isn't the right relationship, rather than how can we talk about this and repair it and go forward in a stronger way. We have a program of research on conflict in the Middle East where we've shown and are continuing to show that when either Israelis or Palestinians have more of a growth mindset about groups, the idea that groups have the potential to grow and change, they have a somewhat more positive attitude toward each other and more willing to even contemplate compromises for the sake of peace. So it's kind of really quite broad. Some of my colleagues have shown that when people are in a growth mindset, they're better able to handle stress. They see more things as challenges rather than stressors, and they function better in situations that may be full of conflict. So those are a few lines of research that we've engaged in. Let me tell you one more in honor of Valentine's Day. One study I did with uh, graduate student Lauren Howe, it actually came out last Valentine's Day, showed how do people recover from painful rejections. And what we found was that people with more of a growth mindset, the belief that they as a person could develop over time, told us about rejections they had had and in one of the studies. And boy, everyone said rejection was super painful. You know, there's someone you who loved you and who knew you really well, and they don't want to be with you anymore. How could that not hurt? But looking back, people in a growth mindset said, you know, I really learned a lot from that. It was painful, but I learned to be more open or I learned that that wasn't a good match. I really need someone who's more this way. And it really, they felt it steered them on the road to finding a better match in the future. People with more of a fixed mindset about who they are felt differently. Many of them, five years later, still felt diminished, reduced by what happened. They felt that the rejection told them who they truly were, not the great person they thought they were, but someone less than that. And they're still grappling with that feeling of being inadequate. They're taking it into their new relationships. They're not being as open or vulnerable in their new relationships, thereby perhaps making the rejection more possible in the future, but also limiting their new relationships because 
the shadow of the old relationship still haunts them, makes them feel bad, makes them feel fearful. So it's not that they, that those with the fixed or growth mindset started out being different people, but their mindsets made them react to these rejections in really different ways. And they carried on, they carried this legacy forward in really different ways too. Do you want to level yourself up and improve your skills and abilities? I do too. And that's why I'm so excited Skillshare is back to sponsor the show once again. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators with more than 25,000 classes in design, business, and more. Skillshare is an amazing resource to discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and career. Whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to keep you learning, thriving, and reaching new goals. There's some amazing business and professional skill classes on Skillshare. I was really blown away, actually, by the quality and the depth of some of these courses. One in particular that really caught my attention was a course on Excel skills. I'm an Excel junkie and I'm a math junkie and I model stuff up, even simple things. I whip out Excel almost on a daily basis just to crunch a few numbers, look at things and help organize my thinking. And to have a class on there that you could take to master that skill set, which is so important in the business world today, is phenomenal. And that's why I love Skillshare. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Science of Success listeners. You can get two months of Skillshare completely for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Science of Success listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for free. All you have to do to sign up is go to Skillshare.com slash success. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash success to start your two months right now. Skillshare is awesome. I highly recommend going to sign up. Check it out. There's definitely a course or probably a number of really high-quality courses and classes on exactly what you want to master in your life today. One more time, go to Skillshare.com slash success and sign up now. Can we change our mindsets? Because I know when I've shared this concept with people, especially those who are sort of mired in a fixed mindset, that's one of the first questions that I often hear. Yes, we can. It's not an easy process. It's a long process. Well, some people say, hey, I had this insight, I get it, and they can run with it. But for many of us, we have fixed mindset legacy, and that's kind of our default. But my colleague in Australia, Susan Mackey, developed this idea that I'll tell you in a moment, and she's used it with business executives, teachers, students. First, it's the idea of identifying your fixed mindset persona. It's that person that lives inside of you and says to you, I'm warning you, don't go there. You could make mistakes. Whoa, this is much too hard for you. You're messing up. I warned you. Oh, look at that person over there. That's the true genius. So this person 
living inside of you, this fixed mindset persona, not trying to harm you, not trying to undermine you, trying to keep you safe. But at the same time, we know a, a fixed mindset keeps us safe, but keeps us stagnating or arrogant or undermined. It keeps us in places that don't allow us to grow optimally. The next thing you do is you try to understand the situations that trigger your fixed mindset. Could be different for different people. For some people, it's being out of their comfort zone. For others, it's when they're criticized. For others, it's when they're in a group and other people seem to be more knowledgeable than they are. So when is it that this person shows up? I saw Susan Mackey working with a business executive. He said, my fixed mindset persona is Dwayne. And Dwayne shows up when we have a deadline looming. I'm not sure we can make. He criticizes the whole team. He often takes the work back from them and does it himself. At the end, he hates them. They hate him. Everything. Even if he makes the deadline, everyone's miserable. And he and his team started talking about how it affects them all when Dwayne shows up and how they could, going forward, recognize Dwayne showing up and deal with him. Now, that brings us to the next step. Name your fixed mindset persona. Name it. Could be Dwayne. It could be your critical father or aunt or uncle. It could be a teacher you once had. It could be a character from a book or a movie. But, you know, when people just give it some thought, someone typically comes to mind pretty quickly. A name comes to mind. Okay, now you're going to work with that named fixed mindset persona. Again, don't try to shove it back into its box. Don't ignore it. Don't insult it. Don't send it away. Welcome it. So say, Dwayne, thank you for your input. I hear you. Maybe you're right. Maybe this is a risky venture, but I, you know, I use people as a sounding board. People are on board. It's exciting. I'm going to learn a lot. I wonder if you can jump on board too, if you can join me going forward. Then, you know, you engage in the thing. It doesn't work out as planned. Dwayne comes back triumphant. Say, okay, Dwayne, I hear you. Again, I know you're trying to protect me, but let's see what we can learn from these setbacks. And let's move on together. Can I count on you to collaborate? So it's a kind of make friends with that fixed mindset persona. Bring it on board with your growth mindset goals little by little. It doesn't happen overnight. But whenever you feel anxious or threatened, it often means Dwayne is there. Listen to your Dwayne. Make friends. Bring Dwayne on board with your growth mindset goals little by little. We haven't done research on this yet, but almost everyone who's tried it has really been pleased by 
the process. There's a few different ideas from the book that I really want to hear your thoughts on. One of them is is the the distinction between success as improvement versus success as superiority. Mm-hmm. Yes. In a fixed mindset, every success can be seen as a sign that you're a superior being, that you're better than others. The worst thing would be to be ordinary, right? Ordinary, like these other people who struggle and maybe you, you think of them as mediocre. So each success says, no, you are someone special. You are better than other people. And you can feel good about that. Every day you can go home and review all the successes you had socially, personally, in your work, and feel like, yes, I'm worthy, not just worthy, but worthier than other people. But in more of a growth mindset, hey, it's nice to succeed. No one's saying it isn't. It's nice when people like you and affirm you. It's nice when things work out. Of course, you want that. But even more so, the fact that you have grown, that your relationship has reached another level, that you've turned a setback into a a triumph that you've grown from, uh, that you've understood something, you've worked hard on something and have understood something that you didn't understand before. And also getting pleasure in other people's growth. So a success is when you've mentored someone or helped them and they've grown and they've succeeded. So it's got this moving forward impetus rather than just sitting there and basking in your greatness. Another concept that I found fascinating, and this was something that really resonated with me when I first uncovered it, is the idea that effort robs you of your excuses. Yes. So there's a phenomenon in psychology called self-handicapping. And what it means is you really handicap yourself. You go to a party the night before a big presentation. You don't prepare till the last minute. And you do that. You're handicapping yourself. You're making, you're actually making failure more likely. But if you don't do well, you have an excuse. You went to a party, you left till the last minute. And if you do well anyway, wow, that really means you're a talented person. Going all out, putting all your effort into something robs you of the possibility of having an excuse for why it didn't work out. In a fixed mindset, this makes perfect sense that you it makes sense that you would jeopardize your success in order to have an excuse. But in a growth mindset, that's insane. Why would you do anything that works against your improving and succeeding? Because in a growth mindset, you know, hey, this is just the first iteration. And even though it's important, I'll learn from whatever happens. And as a team, as a relationship, 
will be better off going forward. There's Foundation Silicon Valley that gives the Failure of the Year Award. And it's for a team that went all out, did everything they should and could. The project didn't work out. And then they learned so many valuable lessons from what happened from that failure that the organization is in a much better place. The organization as a whole is in a much better place going forward to make projects succeed in the future. One of the most impactful ideas from the book for me was the distinction between repairing your failure versus repairing your self-esteem and how, you, <laughs> how it's impossible to learn from a mistake if you deny that you made one to begin with. Yes. In a fixed mindset, the goal is to, after a setback, is to repair your self-esteem. We have a study where we give people a really hard task. They don't do well. People in a fixed mindset choose to look at the performance of people who did a lot worse than they did. They're not going to learn from it, but boy, they're going to feel better than someone. People in a growth mindset look at the performance of people who did a lot better than they did so they can learn and do better the next time. So if you're looking to repair your self-esteem, maybe you're looking for people who did worse. Maybe you're looking to place the blame. Maybe you're looking to deny the failure. In any of those cases, you're not going to be better off going forward. Neuroscience research shows that when people are in a fixed mindset, the part of their brain that processes errors is hardly active. They are just turning away from that error as quickly as possible. As a result, they're not correcting the error at the next opportunity as much as people in a growth mindset. In a growth mindset, that area of the brain is on fire. It's just super active. They're looking at the error, they're processing it, they're learning from it, and they're correcting it. So again, a setback in a fixed mindset is a terrible thing. And of course you want to lay the blame or feel better about yourself because it brings you down. It means you're a lesser person. But if you can get your fixed mindset persona to collaborate with you, you can say, all right, this happened. What can we learn from this? How can we shore up these skills? How can we improve in ways we need to improve and go forward more successfully? To me, that was, that was really one of the most watershed things that I took away from the book was just this simple concept that because you're trying to protect your ego and protect your self-image, if you don't believe that you made a mistake and you've externalized that with blame or excuses or, or whatever else it might be, it's impossible for you to learn from that because by exactly. definition, you don't think that you did anything wrong. And, mm -hmm. and without a focus on that, you're never able to improve. And it's, it's, exactly. such, it's such a powerful concept. Another concept in the book that I thought was, was really interesting was the idea of the mindset of champions and how champions rise to the occasion. Could you talk about that? Yes, yes. There's this example I give in the book of, of Billie Jean King, the 
championship tennis player playing against Margaret Court, another historic figure in the world of tennis. Billie Jean King was trouncing Margaret Court in a match, in a set, rather. And before she knew it, she had lost. She, Billie Jean King, had lost. Same thing happened again. She was trouncing her, and she looked around, and she had lost. And she realized that's what a champion is. There are days you're not at your best. You didn't bring your A game. Your focus isn't there. Your strokes are a little off. And somehow you find it within you to prevail. Michael Jordan once played a championship game with a high fever. And he dug down. He found it within himself. An athlete, great athlete after great athlete, somehow they just didn't, they weren't in perfect shape that day, but they found it. They found it in themselves, that energy, that focus, that will that brought them to a victory. By the way, we have a program of research on willpower and the people who do best are the people who say okay it's in there somewhere it's large it's replenishable and I can find more willpower more energy when I need it. Another concept you talk about in the book that I thought was fascinating is is the distinction between viewing people as judges versus viewing people as allies. Yes. Yes. When you're in a fixed mindset, you always have an audience, an audience that has the potential to judge you. Your boss is a judge, your partner is a judge, your friends can be judges. So you're always having to perform and prove yourself so the judges can give you back the validation that you need. But in a growth mindset, you are surrounded by people you can collaborate with, you can learn from, who can give you constructive feedback, who are resources, and for whom you are a resource. It's a really different world. It's a world of greater trust. It's the idea that People, not all people, I mean, you, you get your people, but that people are there to help you develop, that people are in your corner rooting for you, or at least you can find mentors, and certainly your partner is rooting for you, and that they are not judges, they are collaborators in your development. You can also teach them to be more that way. Tell them what kind of feedback you need. Tell them what kind of support you need. Now, I'm not denying that there are people judging or that there are situations in which you are judged. But I'm saying as a general view of the world, find those people who are committed to your development or can be resources for your development. 
how do we reconcile the lessons of mindset with the idea or the advice of focusing on your strengths? That's a great question. Now, you get a lot of advice, focus on your strengths. And I'm not saying don't focus on your strengths, but I'm saying strengths and weaknesses are really dynamic. Weaknesses, you could have weaknesses because you never built up those muscles. You never trained in those areas. You can have a weakness that's a weakness in one setting and a strength in another setting. So nothing wrong with finding out what your current strengths are and your current weaknesses are. But one thing I found by studying great leaders, CEOs, and so forth, is that they built up their abilities in areas of weakness that would have held them back. A lot of people tell me they thought something was a weakness, but when they worked on it, when they got the proper input and the mentorship, they were really great at that. I have in my book some drawings, some before and after self-portraits of people who couldn't draw to save their lives, a weakness. But they took Betty Edwards' Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain seminar and for, I think it was four days later, they were drawing these amazing self-portraits. You will not believe the before the seminar and after the seminar self-portraits. You would say these were talented people. So that shift was amazing because they got the proper training. And what it says is that you can't predict from the before when you don't have training to the after when you do have training. So again, yeah, capitalize on strengths. Why not? Of course. But don't don't think your strengths are going to be strengths forever if you're not working on them and growing them. And don't rule out weaknesses as future areas of strength in the right circumstances with the right training. Tell me a little bit about the the power of words and what happens when, for example, we tell a child that they're smart. That's so interesting. We undertook this research at the height of the self-esteem movement when everyone was told, tell each other, tell kids, tell your employees, tell everyone how brilliant they are at every opportunity. And what we have found in this research is telling kids they're smart puts them into more of a fixed mindset. You've done something and someone says, oh my God, you're brilliant at this. Suddenly you think everything I do has to be brilliant. Then if you have an opportunity to take on something challenging that you might fail at in the presence of that person, or even in the presence of your own judgment, you think, well, maybe not. Maybe I want to do something that keeps showing how smart I am. However, when you give feedback to people that focuses on that process, the process they engaged in, their hard work, their taking on of challenges, their trying different strategies, their good use of resources, their being a great team member. If you focus on that process they engaged in to do well or have that good performance, they become 
more willing to go out of their comfort zone. They become less thrown by setbacks because they feel like, right, the process is what's valued here. I can duplicate that process. I can engage in that process. I'm not under threat. I'm not under judgment. Now, of course, in a business or in school, you have to perform ultimately. But research has shown that when the more you engage effectively in that process of learning, the better you're going to do in the long run. What's one piece of homework that you would give somebody listening to this episode in terms of kind of a simple first step that they could do to implement some of the things we've talked about? Yes, I would say the very first step is to find your fixed mindset triggers. You know, we used to talk about it as though there were fixed mindset people and growth mind. No, we all have fixed mindset triggers. Find those triggers. Find those triggers. When do you start hearing that voice? When do you start feeling that anxiety or, oh, I don't really want to do this, that kind of fake boredom or distaste? Find those triggers. Start keying into how you feel when that's triggered, what you're thinking, how you behave, how you affect others around you. First step, find those triggers. Second step. Give them a name. And what would be a good example of, of a few common things that trigger the fixed mindset? Oh, yeah, there are a few very common things. First, you're taking on a challenge or you're thinking of taking on a challenge or you're out of your comfort zone. Big trigger. Big time when people feel threatened and the warning voice starts talking, that persona starts talking. Second, you're struggling. You're not making progress. That's often a trigger that says, get out of there, or you don't like this, or blah, blah, blah. Instead of find resources, get help, try new strategies. As we've been saying, the big trigger is setback, criticism, failure. It's saying, nope, nope, what you did wasn't perfect, it wasn't right, maybe it wasn't even good. Big, big, big trigger. For listeners who want to learn more, where can people find you and find Mindset online? Well, my book, Mindset, actually, an updated edition is coming out this week. And it's not a new, uh, you know, a, a completely new edition. Edition, but we've added some important things about the persona work, our work in business organizations, common misunderstandings of a growth mindset. So the book Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, we have a website, Mindset Online, one word, dot com. So coaches, here's the top three takeaways from Carol Dweck. First, Ego and fixed mindset are related, and it limits success. If you have a person with a big ego rather than a strong ego, they likely reflect an arrogance that they don't have much to learn, and that limits their success. Then the second takeaway, it's scientifically proven that you can improve willpower, and that's significant 
because if a player is not on his or her game at a given day, they can dig deep down and summon up additional willpower to create peak performance with energy and focus. That's interesting, isn't it? Do you have any challenges with your team regarding willpower? Maybe with specific athletes? And here's the third takeaway. People with a fixed mindset take rejection or criticism way too seriously. They tend to play the blame game, not assess what went wrong and what they can do to learn and improve in the future. So here's the action step from this interview. Do you have athletes on your team that have a fixed mindset and a resistance to grow? I bet most of them are not that way, but there may be a few. Think about that and how can you turn them around so they see the value of learning from their mistakes as well as learning from other people.